Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 233, Where Science and Compassion Meet. We're joined this week by psychologist and Stanford instructor Kelly McGonigal to explore her work of making compassion more accessible, as well as looking into the challenge she faces in secularizing Buddhist practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today with a special guest, Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, thank you again for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist Geeks. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And it's cool because I got to meet you just a few weeks ago, actually, at the Buddhist Geeks Conference. It was the first time I'd met you. And it just seems so obvious after seeing your presentation there that it would be good to have you on the show. So, <laughs> I'm definitely um, a Buddhist geek. You definitely are. I was a little bit surprised, I'll be honest, because I thought your background was mostly going to be in the kind of mindfulness and science side. But it turned out in watching your presentation that you have a really deep and interesting uh, Buddhist background, which we'll get into as well. And I was just really impressed by your presentation. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll just say a little bit for those that aren't familiar with your work or haven't heard your name before. You are a PhD uh, in health psychology and you also lecture, you do instruction, you do all kinds of interesting stuff through Stanford University which is a prestigious, of course, university. And uh, it's amazing to me, actually, when I think about it, how many of these really top-notch universities are getting interested in having research programs on some of these topics. Yes. Um, And, you know, when I first arrived at Stanford, that was not the case. And I was definitely a little bit ridiculed in the psychology department for my interest in meditation and Buddhist research. I mean, I still remember at one lab meeting, where we were talking about a brain imaging study that we were going to do, looking at different approaches to emotion regulation. And I said, you know, guys, there's this other thing you can do with difficult, unpleasant emotions. And I was trying to explain what it would be like to have a sort of mindful, curious acceptance of an emotional experience. Mm. And one of the um, neuroscientists said, ah, oh, you're talking about that Buddhist stuff. Things have definitely changed. That laboratory now actually has major research funding specifically to study the benefits of meditation. When was this? Uh, 1999. Wow. Okay. So in the last like 12 or 13 years. Yeah. So has there been like a major sea change from your perspective in the interest there? Because it seems like from the outside, like all of a sudden that stuff just blew up. It did feel that way. Uh, I know that we had a particular postdoc, Philippe Golden, who's now one of the leading researchers in the field, but he showed up to that laboratory, the Stanford Psychophysiology Laboratory, in maybe 2002 or three. I'm not really sure. And he brought with him his experience as a Tibetan translator and as a, a mindfulness teacher. And he ended up creating that research program within the psychology department that then gave birth to a lot of other research projects and collaborations with other laboratories, winding up with, a few years ago, the creation of the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which is one of the programs that I work with at Stanford. And that's interdisciplinary. It's not just multiple researchers in the psychology department, 
but it's economists and philosophers and traditional scholars and people who work in neuroeconomics, all sorts of different researchers who are trying to investigate the basis of compassion and cooperation and empathy. And the part that I'm involved in is figuring out how do we best cultivate those traits or those states of mind? Mm, like from the inside out kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. That's really fascinating. And backtracking just a little bit, because I do want to talk a little bit more about your involvement with uh, Care. I know that's the, the shortened version of the Center for Compassion. I know, and it's really the only one I can be guaranteed not to mess up and <laughs> try to get all the words right. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about your background and history with Zen. During your presentation, you mentioned and brought in your experience of sitting at a Zendo. And I was interested and curious in your experience with that. And is that something that predates your work at Stanford? It actually coincides pretty much exactly. Interesting. I have a theory that people come to meditation or to Buddhism for one of two reasons. They're either suffering and they just want to have some relief from that suffering or they feel like something is kind of missing and they've heard that you can be really happy or blissful and they're sort of searching for some sort of uh, you know, supernatural and magical experiences. And I was definitely in the former category. I was actually really unhappy when I arrived at Stanford for my graduate work and the environment pushed me further in that direction. Very anxious, very overwhelmed, feeling very socially isolated having come from a, a large social network on the East Coast and arriving at this campus that really was not supporting social connection in the way I was used to, living in an urban environment and being plopped here in what they call the farm. And so in the middle of all this suffering and angst and and unhappiness, I have no idea why, but I picked up Suzuki Roshi's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And I think I probably associated Zen with this idea of being able to handle difficult things with a kind of calm. So I don't know why I picked up that book, but I remember... It was the first month or two of being at Stanford, and I remember reading it on a bench and having absolutely no idea what he was talking about, and this insight that there was a way of seeing the world or a way of understanding my experience that was fundamentally different than how I was thinking. I just had this kind of aha moment or some sort of intuition that if I came to think in this way that this author, this teacher was writing that it actually would help relieve my suffering. Uh, And that was the sort of impetus I needed to pursue a little bit more training in this area. So I was doing my zazen, as described in the book, on my own, Mm -hmm. and looking for local teachers. And I found in the bookstore a book by Sherry Huber, who is an American Zen teacher, who just happened to have a monastery very close to Stanford's campus, as well as a Zen center. And so I started taking trainings and retreats and uh, sitting sessions with her and her trained facilitators and monks. It was exactly what I needed. There was something about the simplicity of the practice that you just sit down, you stare at a wall, you watch the mind and become a kind of, the way that I've come to think of it is that you become a real compassionate guide to the mind while being a witness to it. And this idea of getting some insight and freedom into how the mind was creating suffering through what was such a simple practice. I was immediately hooked into it and think of that practice as being life-saving. Beautiful. And how, I'm wondering, how has your relationship to that practice changed over these several years? Because you've been doing it for a while now. Well, one thing I should say that is unusual, Sherry Huber's Sangha 
focuses more on compassion and compassion practices than is typical in the Zen community, a more explicit focus on it. So the teaching is that this practice of sitting down with our own mind is to support us in going out into the world for service and for compassionate action. Uh, and then the name of the song is Living Compassion. So I was very drawn to that. Uh, and it also motivated me to get some training in Tibetan mind practices and some of the Tibetan practices of compassion, which is how I ended up teaching for Stanford Sea Care. So part of how my experience with that evolved was really coming to have a sense that that was true, that the ability to observe myself and find this place of center was critical for my ability to work with people who were suffering. And at this time, I had begun to teach stress management and pain relief and yoga and other practices to people who had chronic pain, anxiety and depression, and, and even just working with undergraduates at Stanford who really are suffering the prevalence of eating disorders and depression and anxiety and alcoholism is pretty high, higher than most people would expect. And I found that in all these opportunities I had to work with people who were suffering, it was my practice of sitting down and staring at the wall and being with my breath that was allowing me to be of any use to these people. And so I feel like that's sort of how I view my practice now and that it, it's an anchor for myself, for my own suffering, and also it is the thing that allows me to be of service. And then, of course, part of the way that you're being of services through your professional work with C-Care, let's tie everything together because I'm sure that's important to you is to bring these things together in your, in your actual life. Tell me a little bit more about the work you're doing with C-Care, what it's about, any projects that are going on that might be interesting <laughs> to the Buddhist geeks, just anything you want to share around that. There are two core type of projects happening at C-Care. One is on the, the research side, the basic research side, where researchers are, for example, shining lasers into the brains of mice to see if they can create more compassionate or pro-social behavior by activating or deactivating certain regions of the brain. So I'm not involved in that side, although there are a lot of really interesting research projects going on. I was first brought in to see care when they were developing what would become a nine-week course in compassion cultivation that is very similar to mindfulness-based stress reduction in format and intention, but using the compassion practices rather than mindfulness or the um, stabilizing the mind practices that are taught in MBSR. The senior scholar who was in charge of this project is Tupton Jimpa, who's the senior translator for the Dalai Lama. And the researcher I mentioned earlier, Philippe Golden, brought me in knowing that I was someone who did the practices, was teaching these practices, and also well-versed in the psychology and the science. And the aim of this compassion cultivation program is to fully integrate what we know from psychology and neuroscience about how to cultivate these states and also the limits of them. You know, why it's so difficult to feel compassion for an enemy or why it is that our compassion seems to collapse in the face of large-scale suffering. So to use the insight from psychology and neuroscience to create a context to teach these traditional practices. And so that was a couple years ago. We spent some time working with Jimpa, developing the program, and then I've been teaching it ever since. We're gearing up now to begin a two-year teacher training program um, so that others can become trained to teach this program. So that's one of actually the, the major projects I'm working on now is starting to develop the curriculum for teacher training. 
Nice. And is it similar to mindfulness-based stress reduction in that it's designed for a particular population, like a sort of secular population? Well, so initially we weren't sure. We started out trying to design it as being very secular, which is important. So like MBSR, we were trying not to ask people to believe anything. We were trying to keep out you know, certain Buddhist terms that might push buttons among people who had not fully embraced Buddhist philosophy. To keep it as secular as possible and as grounded in psychology as possible, like MBSR does. And at the same time, we wanted to start offering the program to people who were psychologically healthy and we thought might be well prepared for these practices. Now, over the the years of teaching this, we've um, opened up the program to different populations. And in my experience, actually, it's pretty interesting. In many cases, it's the people who are suffering or have suffered the most in the past who seem to really be able to embrace these practices And in many cases, it's the people who come in testing as psychologically healthy and normal, who either are most resistant to the practices or end up being triggered by the practices in a challenging way. And so I've started to rethink what is the prerequisite for engaging with these practices. Although we have found that people who have, who've done MBSR or some sort of uh, mindfulness training, it's easier for them. Which makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And, you know, one of the topics that we've explored a lot on Buddhist Geeks are starting to explore more, and it's connected to what we were talking about, about the sort of blowing up of interest in meditation in the secular context, is this whole relationship between, we might call them contemplative traditions, you know, established contemplative traditions like Buddhism, like the Centering Prayer Movement in the, in the Christian tradition. And there's so many, I can't name them all, but there are these established and longstanding contemplative traditions that are very much embedded in religious terminology, and they have religious history and figures and philosophy, and it's like a whole big thing. And then there are these sort of secular trainings. Uh, mindfulness, of course, is kind of the big buzzword right now. Uh, maybe it's not just buzz. Maybe it's actually a longstanding thing. But there's one conversation, and it happened at the Buddhist Geeks Conference, where we're talking about this idea of mic mindfulness, that is presenting secular teachings in a way that from a more deep contemplative perspective, you go, oh, that's sort of shallow. That's not really the whole thing. It's just a little tiny piece of it. And so there's this sort of tension that often gets felt for the people in the contemplative traditions, you know, who are uh, really in love with the depth of the practices and philosophy and all that. I guess they get concerned, and I can relate to this, about watering it down or the full richness of it kind of getting left behind in this attempt to make it accessible. So I wanted to throw that out there because I'm sure that you're aware of this. And I wanted to hear kind of your perspective since you really are standing with a foot in both worlds. Yeah, I could talk for a long time about this. So you just interrupt me when you want to. Okay. There's so many different ways that I see some value in having this conversation. I'm not too worried that we are watering things down and giving it to people as an entry-level practice. Where I feel some concern is that we give people practices and we say, good luck to you. Do them and see what happens. And then, you know, we may be off to the next project or maybe someone picked up a book or picked up a, an audio-guided practice or heard something online, read something online. And in my experience, 
where I've received the most benefit from these traditions is in conversations with the teacher and doing the practices. But it, it's hard for me to think about the practices outside of the context of some sort of relationship with people who can give you guidance. And so when I think of the, the dangers of a MIC mindfulness movement, it's not so much the watering down of the practices, but that even if people are doing what some might think of as watered down practices, like sitting down and being with the breath, things are going to come up that require a kind of guidance or kind of reflection back. When I first started teaching some of these so-called watered-down practices under the guise of stress management, what I found is that people are able to turn almost anything against themselves, including something as simple as a breath-focused meditation, something that's supposed to be calming or helpful or relaxing. People will turn it into a way of beating themselves up, a way of trying to control the mind, a competition, an escape from reality. I think the most important thing that we should make sure is not getting lost in the transmission of these things to the masses is that people need a guide for doing these practices or someone to talk to who can offer support. The second concern that I have in terms of the secularization is that in the Seacare program, we are not watering down the practices People are doing Tonglen, which can be a very challenging practice, the practice of giving and taking, taking in people's suffering and giving back compassion, and other practices that are very powerful. And even though we have made the program secular in the core content, I'm finding that people are coming back and reporting experiences that I only know how to respond to with Buddhist ideas. People coming in who are reporting what is essentially the dissolving of the self, the sense, that rigid sense of self, the personality, the ego. People are spontaneously experiencing this when they do the practices and they aren't necessarily deeply disturbed by them, but they don't understand what's happening. And I don't have the theory or the words from Western psychology or a secular field to explain this in a way that I find as helpful as how a Buddhist teacher would explain these experiences and what to do with them of how to use them in your practice and other things like that. You know, the idea that a lot of people are coming in with certain religious or philosophical beliefs that if you suffer, it's because something good is going to happen, that good things come from suffering. So many of these ideas that are sort of part of our conditioning or part of our heritage that come up. And again, I know how to relate to them from a Buddhist philosophy point of view. And it's much more challenging to to give people sort of a compassionate way to think about these experiences or these ideas that is not at all tied into Buddhist terminology and philosophy. So that's what I'm personally struggling with. And actually, I'm hoping that it's something we're going to talk together, the few of us who are teaching this program, who are all teachers of Buddhist ideas in other contexts. How are we going to do this in a secular context? Mm, that's really interesting. Do you have any sort of intuition or sense of what course that might take? Well, so you saw my first sort of footsteps into this at the Buddhist Geeks Conference yes. when I presented those studies on the default network of the brain yes, and how practice can offer a new default. This is the way that I'm trying to get at talking about the self in a secular way. This research is the observation by neuroscientists that the human brain defaults to a certain pattern of activation whenever it does not have a specific focus and that that default pattern is sometimes referred to as the evaluation system. So the brain is deciding what it likes and what it doesn't like about what's happening right now. 
It starts to construct a preferred alternate reality. It starts to do social comparison and other forms of thinking about other people. And what do other people think about me? It's the blah, the blah, blah, blah of the monkey mind or whatever you would call the stuff of the mind that creates so much stress and suffering. When this default network research started really coming out about five years ago, I thought, aha, that's the stuff that we're attending to in meditation. That's the source of so much suffering. Neuroscientists were not thinking of it in that way. So I sort of put that in my back pocket, that there's something about this default network that would be useful in terms of talking about the idea of self and suffering mm. and how the mind creates suffering you know, with clinging and aversion and all the things that we would think about from Buddhist philosophy. And so now the first few studies have started to come out suggesting that meditation practices can provide a new default for the brain, a kind of new default network that is more about attending to your direct experience in the moment than to evaluating it. And that the more we shift how it is we experience life from evaluation to direct experience, it's predicting things like improvement in depression. So I started to talk about this research, to, and I also talked about this research at a yoga conference recently, and it was really well received by them because that's exactly what we're teaching in yoga as well, to drop into the body mm -hmm. and to attend to what's happening in this moment. So that's sort of one way I'm starting to think about how to get at something that is not that secular, but that there is scientific basis for talking about this and about what it has to do with suffering. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so in some part, it's kind of bringing in this growing body of meditation research that's showing certain changes in the physiology and brain. Of course, because most people that live in this culture, we speak the language of science, we grow up learning these things. And this brings up a really interesting question for me, which has to do with to what degree, if we really translate the teachings of Buddhism in some sense or come up with a new language of talking about it that's more scientific, to what degree is that simply translating it into another cultural language? Are we, in this culture, do we have like a kind of invisibility issue where we don't see that actually science and materialism in some ways are kind of religious beliefs in a lot of ways for us. Yeah. It's not like everyone's a trained scientist who quote unquote believes in science. No, um, I, actually, I'm 100% with you. Whenever people in the scientific community are uh, ridiculing people who have other faith-based belief systems, yes. I have to point out, you know what? I don't actually understand climate change science. I don't actually know how to evaluate that data but I'm putting my faith in a basic process right. and a view of the world. So, I, I mean, I'm completely with you on that. Yeah, and it's just something that comes up again. It's part of this complex, maybe, evolution of Buddhism in the, in the West that, that, of course, on Buddhist Geeks, we're so interested in exploring. And it's cool because you're sitting in a position, I love the tagline of your website, uh, where science meets compassion. Mm. And to me, it sort of speaks to these sort of two things coming together, and they are in some ways different. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the amount mm -hmm. of compassion training and uh, the literature and the Tibetan tradition, there's so much richness there that, I mean, it's in the Western heritage as well, like in the humanistic philosophies, but it's not as explicit and there's not like a training on how do you develop compassion, at least that I've seen. So it's really In the cool. West, no. In the West, yeah. Which is why in our compassion cultivation program, what we're teaching people are Tibetan mind training practices. That's right. 
I mean, we're not making stuff up, although there are some, some things that we're bringing in from psychology that turn out to be helpful. And in fact, I actually, I personally think that bringing in some movement, some yoga, whether through breathing or gentle movement and stretching is probably something that's going to be very helpful. And that's something the MBSR people figured out too, that embodying some of the stuff we're doing with the mind is really helpful. But, um, I feel like getting back to that, that original question about what are we doing when we, when we turn these traditions into scientific language? Yes. So at the Buddhist Geeks Conference, um, one of the speakers who came after me made a joke. I don't need to see brain pictures to know that practice changes my mind or, or you know, reduces suffering, something like that, which I totally appreciate. But for people who have not begun a practice, I can see it. When I show them a brain picture, there is a kind of skepticism or resistance that just dissolves. In the face of some of this stuff, people become very curious, certainly the area that I'm in. And so I feel like it's a way of reaching people that will inspire them to then begin their own empirical investigation of whether these practices are helpful to them. I've always felt that this idea of treating your practice as if you were a scientist is completely embedded in the Buddhist tradition that, you know, we sit down, we investigate what's happening in our mind and the effect that practice has on it and on our relationships with other people and our ability to function in the world. And so I actually love being able to talk about treating practice like a personal science project, which also helps disarm people a little bit who are coming in thinking that when we're teaching these practices, it's from a religious agenda that I want you to become a Buddhist, that I want everyone in the world to think a certain way and do these practices and that somehow, somehow like that's the agenda. And so by inviting people to not just learn about the science, but treat the practice as if they were a scientist in their own life is an aesthetic or a way of presenting these practices that is working well in the community that I'm teaching in. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.